Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Stone Pages Archeo News Podcast number 256. I'm your host, Philip Hansen. Now, I hope you've had a great winter break. I know I did. I was at home visiting my family and friends, and it's always nice seeing them again. But now I'm back in England, and I'm working on a bunch of different assignments. So I'm very, very tired, so sorry if um, I don't have the usual energy that I do. However, you probably don't care too much about that. What you are here for is the news. Now, the news, as always, have, of course, been collected from various sources around the web by our very own Diego Miozzi. And to view the sources for each story, as well as any stories that we do miss, you can go to news.stonepages.com to view all those very delicious sources. Now, before I get on to the stories for today's program, I would like to thank all of the listeners and readers who have donated to the Stone Pages website. All of your donations are helping us keep up the servers and make it so we can constantly provide you with the most up-to-date prehistoric news. And now, let's see what we have on today's program. We'll be starting off with our very usual Stonehenge news story about some of the new projects being done in the area. After that, we'll be going to Ireland, where the source of the Irish genome has actually been located, and it's not from a potato, if that's what you're thinking. The next story is in Wales, where Google Earth was used to locate a shepherd's hut. After that, we have some sad news coming out of southern Italy, specifically from Apulia, where these standing stones are being stolen, sadly not recovered yet. After that, we'll be going to Scotland, where they found a Bronze Age rapier. And then we have two stories that are very much connected, as both of them have to do with environmental change, however, at different time periods. The first story is on the Anthropocene period, which is a very modern period around the mid-20th century, and the second one is on the Neolithic period, and it's just on how humans actually changed nature in their own ways in each uh, different period. After that, we'll be looking at man's best friend at the evolution of the first dogs some 33,000 years ago. After that, we'll be looking at the population growth and how it actually wasn't caused by farming. And last but certainly not least, we have some celebrity news, specifically on Utsi and some of the pathogens found in his stomach. Now, without further ado, let's get to it. Now, for our first story of podcast number 256, I would like to try something new. Specifically, I would like to try to do a Stonehenge story because I don't feel that we get enough of those throughout the year. And for those of you wondering, 2016 may be a new year, but the bad jokes are here to stay, including this one. Recently, archaeologists that are part of the Stonehenge survey in regards to building a new tunnel under the existing A303 carriageway in England have recently found a beautiful meter-deep pit which was fitted for a wooden post and is believed to have been cut into the hard chalk using pigs made out of red deer antler which I'm guessing they knew from the red coloring, otherwise it would be blue deer antler. Despite my bad jokes, the find is actually quite amazing, and it is not the only one in the area. In fact, there is a second pit, almost as beautiful and the same size, again also fitted for a wooden post nearby. The two pits are linked by a trench, which actually also seems to run away from the second post and under a later embankment, but carefully avoids an earlier long barrow. Now, due to its size, the original structure would have been visible for kilometers around. 
But the big question right now is, well, what was it actually? And Nick Seashell of the National Trust has actually asked this question. But the truth is that we just don't know. And there's not even a date yet until they uh, get the lab results back. So here's to hoping that we will get the lab results back quite soon and that they can help maybe identify when and for how long this monument was in use. Now, this in itself is actually quite exciting as it does mark a new find in the long history of Stonehenge. As you probably know, Stonehenge is not the only monument in the area. There are also many, many, many others that are buried beneath the ground. And for those of you who don't know, or for those of you who live outside of England, historical England or English heritage, as it used to be known, are actually planning to reunite Stonehenge with its surrounding landscape. This will be done by building a tunnel beneath the A303. And as part of this, they of course need to do some surveying in the area. Now this survey is not just excavations, it's also aerial photography, geological surveys, as well as studying old maps to find ancient monuments that may have been missed originally or now completely gone. One such monument they've actually found is a square enclosure which they believe to be either prehistoric, Roman, or medieval really hitting every single uh, time period with that dating. But it is one of the monuments they've recently found and is on the shoulder of the A303. So we can expect more finds like this probably from the entire uh, surveying when that is done. One of the other results from the area is that they have been able to show how heavily the area was farmed after it came out of use. One of the long barrows actually being plowed completely above ground even before the Romans arrived in England. And that is around 42 AD for those of you who are curious. So the area has definitely been in heavy use for quite some time. Now, of course, as with any bigger project, this has to go through a very heavy planning process. And while various government authorities have agreed upon the plan of for the tunnel, there are still some people who say that the tunnel should not be built. The opposition of the tunnel is the group called the Stonehenge Alliance, which consists of local residents, landowners, historians, druids, and the campaign to protect rural England, who argue that the tunnel should either be longer or not be built at all because, as they say, doing nothing about the present road would be much better than doing the wrong thing in the first place. Alright, and off of that very exciting story from Stonehenge, we'll actually go to Ireland, so not traveling very far at all. And from Ireland, we actually have some genetic news, so not much excavating to be done, or at least not directly for this project anyways. Recently, geneticists from the Trinity College Dublin, as well as archaeologists from the Queen's University Belfast, have sequenced the first genomes from ancient Irish humans. The genomes are from skeletons found in Ireland, of course, uh, one of them being a female early farmer who lived near Belfast some 5,200 years ago, as well as three men from around 4,000 years ago in the Bronze Age. Now, the question is, of course, why is this such big news? Well, it is quite big news because Ireland is very intriguing when you look at it genetically. Not something I knew before, but there we go. This is mostly due to its geographic placement being very much on the edge of many of the European genetic gradients. Now, as a result of this, the origins of their heritage are actually quite unknown. Now, because the original heritage of the Irish genome specifically was not known, it has actually caused a split in the British Isles as far as studying how 
humans moved from the hunter-gatherer lifestyle to the agricultural lifestyle that we see during this period. And also, of course, later from the stone to metal use. And the big split is, of course, whether or not that this was a local adoption or if it was an influx of new people to the area that caused this shift. With the new genomes, however, it is possible to say, apparently, unequivocally, that there has been a massive migration into the area. Now, while the early farmers do have the majority of their ancestry from the Middle East, where agriculture was invented, that is, of course, expected, there is also a lot of fun stuff in the pot. The Bronze Age genomes that were recently discovered are actually from a place known as the Pontic Steppe, which is an area that stretches from north of the Black Sea east to the Caspian Sea. And if you remember, I believe, podcast 255 or 54, we actually talked about the fourth human genome being found in, I believe, that area, actually. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe it was that area. Now, one of the leaders of the study is Dan Bradley, who is the professor of population genetics at Trinity College. And he says that there was a great wave of genome change that swept into Europe from above the Black Sea into Bronze Age Europe. And we now know it washed all the way to the shores of its most westerly island. And this degree of genetic change invites the possibility of other associated changes, perhaps even the introduction of language ancestral to Western Celtic tongues. Now, while there are, of course, a lot of things that could change with the introduction of a new genome, there is actually one very, very physical thing that changes. That is, of course, the outward appearance. Now, the early farmers in Ireland apparently had black hair and brown eyes and resembled more people from Southern Europe, which, if you want a reference, you could look at Diego Miozzi, who, of course, collects all of the news for the Stone Pages podcast and is, of course, also the founder of the podcast. So go have a look if you need a reference for that. And going back to the more serious topic now, the genetic variants that came into Bronze Age Ireland possibly the three men, were the allele for blue eyes as well as the uh, variant for a very important genetic disease which people of Irish descent uh, catch so often that it's often referred to as the Celtic disease. So I guess people of Irish descent or who are from Ireland, uh, I guess you know who to blame now. Of course, nothing is so bad that it can be good for something else because this is actually the first time that uh, scientists have been able to identify an important disease variant in prehistory. One of the other genetic researchers, uh, Laura Cassidy, also adds that the genetic affinity is strongest between the Bronze Age genomes and modern Irish, Scottish, and Welsh, suggesting establishment of central attributes of the insular Celtic genome some 4,000 years ago. And from our last story in Ireland, let's go to Wales, where a prehistoric shepherd's hut was found using Google Earth. The remains of the ancient shepherd's hut was found in the Blanau Gwent Valley in Wales and was actually discovered on a private farm at the top of the, oh boy, Quinmacillan uh, Valley near Blaina and is the first Bronze Age hut to be found in the valley itself. To all the Welsh people listening, by the way, I am sorry for mispronouncing every single one of those names, um, please feel free to correct my pronunciation. The hut was actually found by Ian Fewings, who is a member of the Aberys Truth History and Archaeology Society while he was browsing Google Earth, and was actually looking for signs of a First World War firing range. However, something else caught his eye, which was in the form of a round circle located on private land. 
Now, due to this, Ian Fewings, as the good archaeologist he is, actually asked a local historian, Frank Olding, to accompany him, as well as permission from the landowner, saying that we got permission from the landowner to go and take a look. Frank said he can't be sure, but he thought it was a Bronze Age circle. We got a second opinion. We had an archaeologist come across, and she confirmed it. Now, the site itself is a circular platform which has been cut into the hill and would have, while in use, housed the prehistoric shepherd or farmers that owned the sheep and would most likely have been used in the summer while the sheep and cattle were grazing on top of the hill. Mr. Fewings also added that the owner of the land, Anthony Price, knew the site was there but had been told it was from where sheep feeders were put on the ground. And Mr. Price also found some flint on the site dating from the Neolithic period. Now, Mr. Fewings is, of course, very excited, and the History and Archaeology Society has actually put a funding bid into the Heritage Lottery Fund to survey all of the archaeological sites in the valley and are still waiting to hear back. Mr. Fewings said that if we got the grant from HLF, we will be able to survey and excavate some of the important archaeological sites lurking in this forgotten landscape. And Mr. Fewings, I hope that you get the grant. This sounds like a very, very interesting area of study. And now for some slightly warmer, if not uh, sadder news. Sadly, uh, we are talking about the uh, standing stones in southern Italy being stolen. Now, if you remember from the first podcast I did, we had the happy news of one uh, standing stone from uh, the Isle of Sicily actually being returned. Sadly, this is uh, not the case. Uh, Now, recently, a number of thefts uh, from Apulia, which is the uh, region forming the heel of uh, the boot of Italy, uh, have been reported. However, thieves are sadly stealing a lot of the local heritage, which is namely the uh, standing stones or meniers, as they're also uh, called. The latest theft is of Afiano 1, which is a menhir located in the countryside between the villages of Canole and Giordinano and was reported missing by the archaeologist Cristiano Donato Villani. The uh, stone was apparently lifted by heavy machinery, and all that is left of the stone now is a hole in the ground where it used to sit. Now, this is uh, sadly not the only theft of its kind in the area. Uh, a few weeks earlier, one of the other standing stones, which is uh, called Kivo Diario, uh, was also stolen, and is actually located beside a small church in Sobu near Leke. It was originally discovered by Filippo Montinai, who is the local expert, and again the stone was stolen and what is left is a hole in the ground. The thieves have actually almost been caught when they were trying to steal the uh, Sombrino uh, Menir, which is located near Supersano, and was actually put into a Fiat Punto. Uh, a few bikers who were passing by noticed that the huge stone was protruding from the back of the car, However, this stone sadly also disappeared, which just leaves another empty hole in the countryside. Sadly, the ultimate motives of the thieves is not known, and it's unknown whether or not they'll turn up in gardens or villas or if they've been stolen to order. Some people have actually suggested on a lighter note an archaeomafia. Sadly, however lighthearted we try to be, it is still a very huge loss for the Apulian heritage. And it is very unlikely that the authorities will be able to do anything uh, to protect the standing stones that have been stolen as well as apparently any that are still left up. If we have to do 
anything, I think we should end this one on a lighthearted note and say that we should uh, look in some sheep pens, probably around Sicily, because that's where the last one turned up. So we might get lucky a second time or a third time or a fourth time. Uh, hope they find them. And of course, it is not mentioned in the uh, story, but I'm sure if you have any information or if you see anything, contact the police and they will do their best to try to reclaim the uh, Meniers. Thank you. And from our sad news in Italy, we once again return to the British Isles, and this time to look at a Bronze Age rapier. Now, as a fencer, this one actually made me excited until I realized that it wasn't the type of rapier that I was thinking about. Regardless, a Middle Bronze rapier has recently been discovered by archaeologists from the Rathmel Archaeology uh, Group at Clover and Quarry in Lanark, which is in Lanarkshire, Scotland. The discovery was made while the archaeologists were excavating a curved cairn for the Cloburn Quarry Company. The rapier came from the cairn material, which is believed to have been robbed and dumped next to the cairn during the 19th century, and may actually have been part of a disturbed burial uh, within the curved cairn. The rapier is cast in bronze and measures 337 millimeters in length, with a maximum blade width of 18 millimeters. When in use, the blade would have been attached uh, to a bone or wooden hilt by a series of bronze rivets. And while the blade still survives intact, the butt of the uh, blade is so badly damaged that it is impossible to identify the location of the rivets. Seeing as there are only about 40 dirks and rapiers recorded throughout Scotland, uh, they are very, very much uncommon. And the one found here in Lanarkshire is the first known example from the area. Now, occasionally, these swords actually do turn up in hordes, which are usually found in wet places such as peat bogs. So it is actually a very phenomenal discovery to find an isolated specimen like this one in such close association with a burial monument of a comparable date. The initial dating so far says that the rapier has its origins in the early Middle Bronze Age, dating to perhaps 1600 BC, and actually has affinities with known examples from the Dumfries and Galloway and Ireland. And from Bronze Age rapiers, let's go to a new historical period. This comes as the result of research done by scientists which shows a new geological epoch, and the evidence for it is actually very overwhelming, and it is known as the Anthropocene period. This new period is remarkably later than the last period, which is the Holocene period, which is characterized by the domestication of land to increase fruit production, building urban settlements, as well as becoming proficient in developing water, mineral, and energy resources. Instead, the Anthropocene period is a newer period of rapid environmental change, which is brought on by a surge in human population and increased consumption, which is characteristic of the great acceleration that took part in the mid-20th century. Dr. Colin Waters of the British Geological Survey says humans have long affected the environment, but recently there has been a rapid global spread of novel materials including aluminium, concrete, and plastics, which are leaving their mark in sediments. Fossil fuel consumption has dispersed fly ash particles worldwide, pretty well coinciding with the peak distribution of the bomb spike of radionuclides generated by atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons. Jens Salasiewicz of the University of Leicester who is also a chairman of the working group and co-author of the paper, adds that all of this shows that there is an underlying reality to the Anthropocene concept. The Anthropocene working group is currently leading the study with 24 of their members co-authoring the paper. 
and it shows that human activity has had such a big impact on Earth that it can produce a range of signals in sediments and ice, which are significantly distinctive and could actually be recognized as a geological timescale in and of itself. The Anthropocene Working Group will continue to gather evidence in 2016 and will help form recommendations of whether or not this time period should become formalized, and if so, how it might be defined and characterized. And now, actually, in the uh, same category of environmental change, this time we'll be looking at the possible environmental impact of the Neolithic Revolution. This actually comes as a new study, which is part of the hunt for the Anthropocene period, which we discussed in the uh, last story. And what they've actually found is that there is a very big change that appears on Earth about 6,000 years ago, when some pattern in nature was disrupted around the same time that agriculture spread across North America. This is described by Nicolas Gotelli, who is a biologist at the University of Vermont, saying that when early humans started farming and became dominant in the terrestrial landscape, we see this dramatic restructuring of plant and animal communities. Now, as I mentioned, this is actually part of the hunt for the Anthropocene period, and one of the lead researchers of the study, um, Kathleen Lyons, mentioned that this tells us that humans have been having a massive effect on the environment for a very long time. Now, Gotelli and Leon, as well as 29 other scientists, have actually studied modern ecosystems as well as fossil records stretching all the way back to the Carboniferous period, which is a long time before the dinosaurs uh, emerged. What they were looking for is plant and animal pairs within the same community. This is also known as aggregation, meaning that they tend to appear together in the same way that giraffes and cheetahs appear together because they both depend on the same habitat. However, other species are segregated, which means that when one is found, it is unlikely that the other one will be found. Now, in modern communities, when studying the plants and animals and those, you most often find segregated pairs rather than aggregated ones. However, when scientists investigated the fossils for the uh, composition of ancient communities, they actually found the opposite pattern. From 307 million years ago to about 6,000 years ago, there was a higher frequency of aggregated pairs. Then from around 6,000 years ago all the way to now, the pattern shifts and there is a predominance of segregated species pairs. For some reason, some ancient rule had changed. And as Gotelli does uh, mention, we don't have direct evidence to show that this pattern change was caused by humans. However, the indirect evidence is quite compelling due to the fact that the new uh, pattern actually emerges some 6,000 years ago, which is during the Great Neolithic Revolution, when humans started to develop agriculture and the populations grew and spread around the globe. And from that period, plants and animals show a lesser frequency of aggregating and rather segregating instead. Now, it should be mentioned that they were actually also looking at other factors. They did explore and eliminate a lot of other reasons why this could have happened. Leon actually does say, so we're left with human impacts. We think it's something that humans do that causes barriers to dispersal for both plants and animal species. Gotelli also says that we humans have influenced the landscape, but perhaps for a lot longer than we had previously recognized. When we look at landscapes and say this is pristine or unaltered, that's not necessarily true. We may have changed the rules over a much larger scale than we appreciate. Now in regards to Leon's comment about the human factor, it would make sense that this does happen around the time of agriculture since you are getting something very unnatural and large fields which would then separate 
animal and plant species as humans crossbreed specific animals to get certain results and crossbreed plants in the same way to get certain results. For me, that would be the best indication, but I'm not a scientist, so I'll look forward to seeing more results from this study. And now for our next story, we're going to be looking at man's best friend. And as we all know, it is very hard being a dog. Some might say they lead a rough life, and life is about to get even rougher for the domesticated dog. This is from the results of a new study done in Sweden, studying the evolution of the domesticated dog. The first study of dog genome shows that dogs as we know them actually became self-domesticated as they slowly evolved from wolves who joined humans in the hunt. The study also shows that the first domesticated dogs appeared some 33,000 years ago, after which they migrated to Europe, rather than descending from domesticated European wolves some 10,000 years ago as previously thought. This is, of course, in relation to guarding livestock, as agriculture some 10,000 years ago had become a staple of the economy. However, with the new study, this is not the case. Now, scientists have wondered for quite some time how man's best friend actually came to be, as there has been a lot of conflicting evidence concerning when the first wolves were actually tamed. To answer this question, Professor Savolainen and some of his colleagues studied the genomes of 58 members of the dog family, including gray wolves, dogs from Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia, from Nigeria, as well as a collection of breeds from the rest of the world. Now, the results of this DNA analysis found that the dogs from Southeast Asia actually had a higher genetic diversity and were more closely related to gray wolves from which the domestic dogs actually evolved. Professor Savolainen, who works at the Royal Institute of Technology in Solna, Sweden, said that this indicates an ancient origin of domestic dogs in Southeastern Asia 33,000 years ago. Professor Savolainen also added that the mild population bottleneck in dogs suggests dog domestication may have been a long process that started from a group of wolves that became loosely associated and scavenged with humans. Before experiencing waves of selection for phenotypes, that is mutations, that gradually favored stronger bonding with humans, a process called self-domestication. Now, this self-domestication may have involved three major stages, which include loosely engaged pre-domesticated scavengers, domesticated non-breed dogs with close human-dog interactions, as well as breed formation following intense human selection for a diverse set of traits. Now, of course, when we're talking prehistory, there's also always going to be a slight migration or a very large migration, as the case may be. And this is believed to have started some 15,000 years ago when the first domesticated dogs entered the Middle East and Africa, coming to Europe some 10,000 years ago. Some people do believe that this is actually a part of the uh, following humans from A to B. However, some scientists do believe that there are other factors, such as the retreat of the glacial ice some 19,000 years ago. In regards to the study, Professor Savolainen said, Our study, for the first time, reveals the extraordinary journey the domestic dog has traveled on this planet during the past 33,000 years. However, while this is the first study, it should be noted that there are still a lot of questions surrounding the domestic dog specifically in the aspects of origins and evolution of the domestic dog. There are several questions concerning the geographical origin of certain dog species, as well as the estimated date of when the first wolves and dogs actually split into the two different categories between 32,000 and 10,000 years ago. So there is still plenty of work to be done. Now, as I did mention in the start of the story, and we'll repeat it if you fell asleep during the middle or during the start, 
this new study does move back the earliest known appearance of the domestic dog quite a bit, as it was originally believed, as it is believed that the first dogs came about some 10,000 years ago as a result of agriculture, possibly to protect livestock. However, the new study shows that it began much earlier, a long time before uh, the first invention of agriculture. And now I think we have spent enough time in uh, Europe, so I feel we should go to the US, where archaeologists, or rather scientists, have found out that the prehistoric human population did actually not boom due to farming. This is due to a new study being carried out in Wyoming and Colorado, which shows that the uh, hunter-gatherer populations in those regions grew at the same rate as farming societies in Europe which is based on new radiocarbon analysis done by the University of Wyoming. And they actually challenge the view that we normally hold that around uh, 10 to 12,000 years ago, when agriculture was introduced, that it accelerated the human growth. Robert Kelly, who is a University of Wyoming professor of anthropology and co-author of the study, says that our analysis shows that transitioning farming societies experienced the same rate of growth as contemporaneous foraging societies. The same rate of growth measured for populations dwelling in a range of environments and practicing a variety of subsidence strategies suggest that the global climate and or other biological factors, not adaptability to local environment or subsidence practices, regulated long-term growth population of the human population for most of the past 12,000 years. Now, earlier research has shown that the prehistoric human population at the end of the Ice Age, grew at 0.04% annually, which, if you compare that to the modern average growth, that is today 1% per year. Now, this 0.04% held true until about 200 years ago, when a number of factors led to higher growth rates. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, the scientists analyzed radiocarbon dates from Wyoming and Colorado, which were done by the University of Wyoming and the Harvard-Smithsonian. Now, apart from Robert Kelly from the University of Wyoming, the other people in the study is also the lead author, who is uh, Javran Sahit of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts, as well as Eric Robinson, who is a doctoral researcher in the University of Wyoming's Department of Anthropology, who also participated in the study. For their research, the scientists analyzed the radiocarbon dates from Wyoming and Colorado, which were recovered predominantly from charcoal hearths, which then provided a direct record of the prehistoric human activity. Now, what the results showed was that between 6,000 to 13,000 years ago in the area of Wyoming and Colorado, the people who foraged on animals and plants to survive in the area had a annual growth of 0.041%, which is consistent with the growth that took place in most of North America. Now, in contemporary societies from Europe, where uh, we were farming or transitioning to agriculture, the growth was essentially the same. The researchers wrote that the introduction of agriculture cannot be directly linked to an increase in the long-term annual rate of population growth. Now, these were not the only places that were studied. The scientists also say that in general, Similar rates of growth were measured for prehistoric human populations across a broad range of geographies and climates. This similarity in growth rates suggests that prehistoric humans effectively adapted to their surroundings such that region-specific environmental pressure was not the primary mechanism regulating long-term population growth.
Instead, the factors that controlled long-term population growth during that period likely were global in nature, such as climate change or biological factors affecting all humans, such as disease. And now for some prehistoric celebrity news, specifically about Utsi. Scientists have recently found pathogen in Utsi's stomach after extracting DNA from the entire stomach of the, of course, very famous 5,300-year-old ice mummy. Through this, researchers were able to isolate the oldest complete genome of a pathogen uh, yet to be found, which revealed that Utsi was carrying the bacterium Heliocobacter pylori. This pathogen is carried by half of all modern humans and can cause small ulcers in the stomach as well as lead to stomach cancer. The bacterium was found by Albert Sink and his team who worked for the Institute for Mummies and the Iceman in Balsano, Italy. Look for the bacteria after the mummy's genome had been completely mapped out. Now, the strain of bacterium found in Utsi's stomach is interesting in that it is very different from the ones found in modern Europe, which is a hybrid of two strains circulating Central and South Asia, as well as North Africa. Utsi's, however, matched only the Asian strain, and until now, it had been assumed that the Neolithic humans were carrying the European strain around the time they took up agriculture. However, Utsi's pathogens prove that this is not the case, suggesting that the human settlement in Europe is a lot more complex than we previously assumed. Now, humans acquire the pathogen through close contact, and researchers have actually used the DNA previously to trace past human migrations. Singh's team are actually now suggesting that the migration that brought the North African strain to Europe occurred after Utsi's death. One of the study's co-authors, Yosan Moodley, says that the Utsi bacteria was probably the original strain that lived in the stomachs of the first Europeans, adding that this ancient HP strain has allowed us what is perhaps a unique opportunity to discover what populations of Heliocobacter pylori existed in Europe during this Copper Age, revealing also that this might never happen again that we find such a wonderfully preserved specimen where Heliocobacter pylori DNA still can be extracted. A previous study did suggest that the bacteria could have uh, risen in the Middle East as long back as 50,000 years ago, and there are several research projects to take place in South America and Asia, which are currently on the planning stage. Now, on that note, I do believe that we have sadly reached the end of our podcast. As always, you can find the sources to all of our stories by visiting news.stonepages.com. And you can also find all of the other news that we did not cover in this podcast. If you want to follow us when you're out about, you can follow us on Twitter using the Twitter handle at StonePages. Now, as always, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast, and I hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.